Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. I hope you find this episode with Kathleen and I interesting. We talked about uh, three different sort of areas of development as a player. One is going to be people who are beginners. One will be sort of that college age, maybe late high school, maybe just out of college stage of development, and then also professionals and the different things that each one should theoretically focused on through a lens of deliberate practice and gold method practice organization. So we really enjoyed doing this episode. We hope it's kind of interesting to listen to. Uh, before we get into that, I just want to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar with Houghton Horns, they are a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest level of products, services, and resources to the brass playing community. I did a video with Houghton Horns where I compared my Bach 25H 239 Sterling Silver Bell C Trumpet, a Bach C190 C Trumpet, and a Shires 4S8 C Trumpet. And I played a whole bunch of different excerpts, and I kind of talked about uh, why I chose those excerpts to compare different categories of performance, and then I just let the horns speak for themselves. I set up the video so you hear the trumpet for a little bit, and then it tells you which one, so you can kind of guess and see if you can figure out different characteristics that define the different instruments. And then at the very end, I put a mystery excerpt where I don't say what it is, and you can just guess for yourself. Uh, if you would find this interesting, I'm going to leave a link to that video in the bio or the description, and you can check that out. I hope you find it enjoyable. It seems like lots of people have uh, had fun trying to guess which instrument was which, and it's been interesting for me to see the feedback. So definitely leave a comment with your thoughts, and uh, I hope you enjoy that. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I am joined by my lovely wife, Kathleen Costello. Kathleen, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. <laughs> um, on today's episode, we're going to do something kind of specific, but we hope that it is uh, applicable to lots of different people. We're going to discuss three different sort of categories or three types of players at three different stages in their development. And we're going to try to look at um, what we think they should do from a theoretical standpoint, looking through the lens of deliberate practice, the gold method, a few other areas that we've been discussing recently, because we just think it's kind of important, the language surrounding these particular um, aspects of how we get better. Like I said, things like deliberate practice, using that language to help frame how we view the way people should be developing, depending on their um, I guess their stage of development in their career or their playing journey, so to speak. Hopefully that makes sense. Do you feel like I sort of frame that well? I think so. I think it'll become more clear as we <laughs> yeah. dig into it. 
So um, we're excited for this. I hope you're excited for this. Um, the three stages of development, if you want to call them that, we're going to discuss someone who's a beginner. By a beginner, all I mean is they're relatively new to the instrument. Um, there's lots of struggle with a beginner. They kind of don't have some of the fundamental or foundational aspects of playing uh, in their grasp. And so we're going to discuss what deliberate practice would say about that. So the first group or the first stage of development that we're going to discuss is going to be beginners. And by beginners, all I mean are people who are relatively new in their journey. It doesn't have to be a literal beginner, but basically someone who is struggling with the foundational or fundamental aspects of playing their instrument and what does deliberate practice and the gold method and stuff like that have to say about what would theoretically be the right way or the right approach for them based on their development. The next category we're going to cover is going to be the sort of late high school, college age, maybe slightly after college, depending on your level of development. It's going to be people who have a much more firm grasp or much firmer grasp on their instrument and the abilities and the foundational principles. And you're starting to shift into a little bit more ownership in your approach. So what would deliberate practice say about that? And the gold method. And then finally, we'll look at a professional, someone who's on their own, someone who's got to guide their own work. How do we uh, think about that kind of work and what those people should be doing based on their, um, I guess, their circumstances in their life. And maybe, again, maybe there's other circumstances beyond their job that would dictate how they spend their time in the practice room. So um, again, this is all going to be theoretical. And I think that's a, it's a valuable uh, thing to bring forward just to say, based on what we understand, here's something that could make sense because it might help jog all of our um, sort of imagination centers, if you want to say of, well, I'm doing a lot of this stuff, but what they said here is kind of interesting. Maybe I'll see if I can incorporate that. So that's what I'm after. Do you have anything to add before we get started? I don't think so. Cool. So I'm going to try to use Kathleen, uh, her teaching uh, as sort of the basis for how we frame this because she's just taught beginners, more beginners. She's taught more college-age students than I have. So I have some things to offer here, but fewer real-life applications. So I think it'd be easier just to sort of um, ask her questions, see where we're at with that. So the first category of beginners, again, this is going to be 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth grade, maybe a little further depending on, again, their instruction, their development. Um, the, the students that you have worked with at this stage of development, just trying to say from a big picture view, what are you most concerned with them understanding? What are your sort of order of operations type things? What exercises do you like to use? Like I know you like to use scales a lot with all of your students, but especially that age. Can you just sort of give us an overview of your approach? And then using that, we will move into the deliberate practice discussion. Sure. Um, well, I think it's important first to make a distinction between the possibility that I could have full autonomy over a student, like what they're doing, and then the reality, which is more that they're usually working in a band program. And so a lot of what we have, you know, have to work with is kind of set by that band program. But that being said, um, you know, obviously I try to like work alongside the band directors and help them get what they need, but also as much as I possibly can get the help the students to get what they need. So I would say, of course, you know, this is where you want to lay all the foundations, like all the healthy foundations of a good sound. And for any wind instrument, and you can agree or disagree, but I think 
like teaching them how to use their air is the most important thing. So getting that from the very beginning, like just getting them to move air through the instrument. So for clarinet, that means that they need to start on like a pretty free blowing setup because they don't have the muscle, you know, sort of built up in their um, embouchure, their mouth muscles to um, be able to handle like a, a more resistant setup. So they need something really free blowing so that they can just learn to move their air through the instrument. That's really the big thing. So for me, and this has been affirmed, I think, by other teachers that I respect and certain methods of pedagogy and in particular a book that I use or that I like to use for beginners, Miss um, Avram um, Galper, I think I'm not sure what it's called actually, but it's basically like a beginning like clarinet book. But it essentially takes, you know, it focuses on the, the lowest register of the instrument. So the shallow register of the instrument and then slurring because... I think what we find is that, you know, when you begin to introduce articulation into it, it's like a whole new layer of difficulty. So that if you can just get them slurring and moving their air and getting a good sound in the low register, then they're really well set up for um, moving beyond that point. Now, of course, again, like depending on the band program and what music they're being given in band, that can be challenging if they kind of push them into the next register, perhaps before they're ready. Um, but ideally, in an ideal world, I keep them for a, a while in that in that first register, really developing their their foundation of their sound. Um, and then, yeah, I believe in starting to teach them scales, or you know, even like five note scales, or just the beginning of that vocabulary right away, and just getting them to know as many of those scales and pieces of the chromatic scale. Um, all of that's really good for developing that early sort of. Um, proper way to move their fingers and just set them up with great hand position as well. Yeah. So thinking about it from uh, a deliberate practice viewpoint, um, deliberate practice, we can sort of separate uh, deliberate practice principles into mental representations and then the deliberate practice techniques we use to get feedback to be able to make those changes and then implement the changes that we want. So one of the... Uh, Let's just start with the mental representation. So at this stage, to my understanding, the player who's a beginner has no mental representation whatsoever. So that's one of the most important things to set up right from the get-go. And using things like modeling, obviously, the teacher plays, the student plays is insanely beneficial. And then also, like you said, some of these foundational building blocks of... We have scales or various arpeggios or other technical exercises that are relatively simple that help build just that I'm playing in this key. So when I see it in other music, I've sort of built some muscle memory into it, if you want to call it that. Um, what's your take on that? How do you try to manage um, the development of the mental representation? And basically you can think about, for those that don't know, you can think about this as sort of like a mental picture or mm -hmm. sort of the map that's guiding you through it. The more clear the map, the more success you have in finding the destination. So what's, yeah. what's your take? I, mean, I think that's a great question or a great point. And if we wanted to use the scales as an example, that would be, I think, an, a really apt example because what you find, and again, this can be really demonstrated in the way that scales are taught. So, well, there's, there are two thoughts on this. First of all, there are some, <laughs> some programs that will just teach a scale and the, the students will like pass off a scale and then they kind of don't ever come back to it unless they're being, you know what I mean? Unless they're in private lessons or 
the band director runs them through their scales or they have some other way to like run through the scales. A lot of times they, they will like interpret like, oh, I, you know, mastered this scale and then they won't play it anymore, which we all know, like, that's not how it works. You got to keep, you know, you got to keep coming back to that material and learning it more deeply and internalizing it more deeply. So that's my first thought on like kind of, I guess, like wrong thinking about how we deal with with that. It would sort of be like if I took, you know, one, you know, Italian lesson like 10 years ago <laughs> and memorized some vocabulary words and then never used them again for, you know what I mean? in, in any kind of sort of like, you know, regular way in 10 years, I probably wouldn't remember them or wouldn't have good command over those, those words most likely. Um, and then second of all, um, this idea that just learning a scale isn't necessarily understanding how to play inside of that key, right? So I have a couple students, even one that I started much to my frustration that, you know, she sort of, she'll only like do her, you know, she hates practicing scales, so she doesn't do it. And then when she does, she only practices it in a certain way and in a certain order, even though I've obviously told her many times not to do that. And I've encouraged her to like learn them in different ways. We tried a lot of different things, but um, for whatever reason, you know, it's just that, you know, that sort of all state or Alabama all state way of learning scales where, you know, they learn it in the exact same pattern and they don't deviate from that. So your fingers can memorize that, right? Like you can kind of get that rote memorization, but it's different than understanding it intellectually or creating that mental map in your mind of what it's like to play in B flat major. So I think in order to do that, you actually have to do more than just like learn the scale starting on the tonic, which would be the, the first note of the scale. So in this case, the B flat and going up to the B flat, however many octaves and coming back down, but you need to be able to start on any note within that scale or you need to be able to like, you know, play any combination of notes within that key, understanding what that key feels like. And and you can probably speak to this more as a, a, I mean, we're both transposing instruments, but I think you transpose a lot more than I do. And We've had these conversations about how that really factors into your mental representation as well. But to, as so as not to sidetrack this conversation too much, I think that's so important learning how to like actually, what does it feel like? What is it? What is the mental representation of playing in that key? And there's a lot of work that goes into that. The scale is just the very first layer, I would say. Yeah. And the, again, the reason I'm, so interested in this is because the mental representation is everything. From what I understand, from what I've read, the mental representation is the difference between expert high-level performers and people who are not expert high-level performers. And so to me, an understanding that when you are practicing scales, when you are modeling what your teacher is doing and your teacher is explaining what's going on and how you're creating that as a beginner, even if it's very basic, right? Even if it's not super complicated where you don't, you know, you're not doing crazy things and playing all your favorite repertoire, even if it's on just long tones, this is where we build the foundation of what we will be owning later. And if we skip this stage in the development and we just go right to, well, I've just played it enough. When we skip past that point and we say, well, I've just like played it in band enough times that I kind of know how it goes. We miss this like part of how we're kneading together, like this more complex picture that we can use to then reach higher and more difficult levels of performance. Yeah. I mean, music is so complicated for the uninitiated. I mean, even for the initiated, it's complicated, but... Yeah. I mean, like having a good ear and being able to sit in band class and, you know, maybe you have a stronger player to your right that you can kind of like lean on and, 
you know, you hear how they're doing it and you just kind of mimic it and you can get by, you sort of know what you have to leave out and kind of, I mean, that that can create a lot of really poor habits actually, because, you know, you're not using your mind to interpret rhythms on your own. You're not, you know, maybe even like notes. Sometimes students are just, you know, kind of experimenting until they get it right, or it sounds like it matches or it lines up or, you know, kind of sloppily like playing some of it or leaving something out is not the same as trying to master something that's in front of you. So there's all kinds of ways this can can go sideways. And of course, like I think really what we'll sort of veer back to and, and you can control this conversation how you desire, but, you know, is how do we set up their practice so that they are, they do feel equipped to like be able to play their band music and, you know, if they're wanting to audition for Allstate or other you know, competitions or things like that, that they feel prepared through the work that we assign them to do that, to learn the music that they have to learn and, and ideally master it at the level that they are able to master it. Yeah. I mean, again, I have very little experience with working with beginners. So you can uh, speak to your experience in a second. Theoretically speaking, so structure-wise, the student should be making very few decisions of their own, in my opinion. It should be, I've, I'm telling you exactly what to do. I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it. I just want you to do what I'm telling you to do. If you do what I tell you to do, you will get better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously that needs to become more complex as you age and as you develop. That's what we're going to talk about in a second. But as a beginner... I think just like if you were to be a beginner in a sport or something like that, like, you know, nothing. And so your opinion is not really valid, right? You're getting mm-hmm. the the opinion of an expert teacher to say, this is what you do. This is how you do it. And so obviously understanding as a teacher, we'll get into this in just a second, but getting into the mechanics of understanding as a teacher, this method is an effective way to get them to to do what I want them to do. And then basically saying, all right, we'll play these scales these days. We'll play these long tones. We'll do them this way at this tempo. So they have almost no decisions to make. They just need to show up and do it. I think heavy amounts of routine, theoretically speaking, will be very good for everybody, especially, but this stage of development. So you're really, all they have to think about is remembering what you told them to do, but you've worked with more beginners. So maybe there's more nuance. I think there is actually, because I agree with that. And you do want to instruct them very carefully. I think this will hold true actually all along the way. Like all the students I've had that have done the best or have been the most successful are the ones that like have taken what I've said to heart and gone home and and practiced it and done it. So that's just kind of a given, you know, but I, I think what you're saying right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, they need a lot of handholding in the beginning. And they do. Yeah. And that's partly why what we assign them early on is pretty simple. It's not super complicated so that they can, they can do that and be successful. The exercises are short, you know, we don't give them tons of scales. Maybe they know one scale or two scales or three scales, or we can kind of seeing on how quickly they sort of master those, how we, how we can add those, um, into the mix. But I do think, and I hope this is okay that I'm saying this, but I do think it also has to be fun for them too. Like they have to have some aspect that they like or connect to about it. So for some, I've had a couple of students that were really like amazingly good at just experimenting, you know, keep continuing to try things until that kind of like worked or just kind of going after it in that way, which would, would actually line up with the deliberate practice thing, like that they don't get discouraged super easily. So they'll just sort of, you know, keep trying something until they get it. Or, 
you know, it's you have to give them a tune that they want to play or a song that they like so that they feel like, you know, we're sort of dealing with this with Patrick right now, um, our son, who's mm -hmm. almost 10, you know, like giving him Star Wars. The Star Wars theme was exciting and that's motivating to practice if he thinks he can go downstairs and work on that and then like leave being able to play the Star Wars theme. So that will really hold true with kids, you know? I mean, and even like you could, I'm sure you can relate to this too. Like there's certain repertoire that I'm more interested or excited to work on than something that wouldn't be my first choice, but you know, yeah, you've yeah. got to learn it for whatever. And sometimes there's a lot of <laughs> swearing or cursing that goes <laughs> along with, you know, something that you have to work on that you really don't want to. So I just think that's so important in the beginning to, you know, to try to tap into what, they'll connect with. And some kids just don't. Some kids are just not, they're just not that interested. You find, you know, you can't, you can't turn, in my opinion, maybe someone else can, but I have not been able to turn just any child, any beginner into some fantastic player. I don't, I don't have that gift or that skill, but. Well, and that kind of transitions into this last part of discussing the beginners is, I don't think we have to go way into depth, but from a theoretical standpoint, based on deliberate practice, gold method type structure organization, what's the like? What's the responsibility of the teacher at this stage, and what's the responsibility of the student at this stage? So, I would say, based on our conversation, so I think it's the responsibility of the teacher to be able to uh, establish the mental representation. I think, based on this conversation, that is the kind of the most important thing that can happen, and that comes through proper demonstration, mm -hmm. modeling, yeah. uh, proper explanation of how the sound is created um, through assign, assigning of exercises that will um, help not only demonstrate or to help the student have an opportunity to develop that skill itself, but also to develop the mental representation surrounding the musical language we work in. Like we talk about scales and other mm -hmm. exercises mm -hmm. and things like that. And then also to provide, in my opinion, a pretty... Um, maybe not comprehensive, but a pretty specific routine that can be very simple, but that is very easy to follow. Yeah. So the student can just be like, all right, I know what to do. I can just get in there and I can practice. If it takes 30 minutes, it's fine, but it, there's very little barrier of entry. Is there anything well, you would gonna add? Well, I was going to say, yeah, and maybe not even that long in the beginning because, you know, their attention spans are pretty short at this point. They can get frustrated easily. Their musculature, at least, I mean, I think this is probably different for like string instruments and piano potentially, but, you know, you're really, you're starting to build these muscles that they don't really use for anything else. So in the beginning, like 15, 20 minutes, the, the, the big thing is just that consistency, you know, not practicing like once or twice a week, but if you can get them practicing five days a week, like, yeah that's more important. That recurrence, you know, 15, 20 minutes a day, five days a week, like that's pretty ideal in the beginning. And they can get a lot done if they know what to do, um, but not not overloading them in the beginning. But yeah, just being really clear. And, um, you know, like back in the day, like we had practice logs we had to fill out. You know, I don't see those as much anymore, but they'll make a lot of progress. And then one last thing I think is so important for any parents out there that are listening um, it's just the equipment, the quality of the equipment. It does not have to be super expensive, but if it is faulty, you know, if it like I've, unfortunately, there are some instruments being made right now that if you gave them to me right now, I would not be able to play it because they just, they don't, you know, they're so cheaply made and it's kind of a travesty that they're out there and they're on Amazon or wherever and they're cheap and it's tempting to just, you know, sort of 
you know, grab onto that and say, oh, I can spend $200 on this clarinet I found on Amazon. But really, you know, ask your teachers and, and get recommendations on equipment because it will make or break a child. And you, it's so, it's, it's one of the heart, most heartbreaking things. And of course, COVID was so hard for this because we couldn't, you know, we weren't like trying students' instruments or they're checking their mouthpieces or their reads, you know, cause that was all like off the table, but you know, a student trying to play something that is just absolutely not in working order. So you know, the right equipment, I don't care what instrument you're talking about. It just something that works is so, so important. That sounds obvious, but you would be amazed at what I've seen over the years. <laughs> yeah. And I think too, speaking to what you're saying here, um, just the fact that you would have a teacher at all, mm -hmm. you know, that it's not enough to just go through the band program because you're not getting that specific feedback for you and your particular, I mean, you could have the best band program in the world and you're, you're, you're only going to get so far because you need more specific instruction for mm -hmm. your, what you're going through and what you're dealing with. And I think, you know, if kids are just trying to have a good time playing in band, that's like one thing, but it's a lot more fun when you understand what you're doing. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I really think like, no matter how much fun it is hanging out with your friends, It'd be a lot more fun hanging out with your friends and sounding good or at least having the ability to enjoy it. So even just getting a teacher in the first place. And then what for you as a responsibility of the student as something as simple as just being committed to doing exactly yeah. what you're asked to yeah. do maybe? I just think it's like showing up, you know, in the beginning, just being willing to, you know, remember to take the clarinet home, <laughs> get it out of the case, play it for, you know, 15, 20 minutes and you know, do your best to remember what your teacher told you. And, you know, at this point, you know, I, I don't know. I think we're not like thinking so much or caring about somebody creating the most beautiful sound, you know, that there's so much that, that is going to go into that over time and over the years. But like I said, you know, just getting them to move their air, feel like what, what's the thing that creates the sound, you know, for wind instruments is moving your air through the instrument that creates the sound, you know, for a string instrument, it's the, you know, it's that the movement of the bow on the string, you know, so just like really, you know, remembering the fundamental thing that creates the sound in your instrument is going to be so, you know, just that first puzzle piece. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to, um, sort of a college age or late high school, maybe just graduated. And let's just kind of go through the same process. Now that we've kind of gone through it, maybe we can, we don't have to expand quite so much unless we feel like it's necessary. But in your experience and working with high school kids, college students, what are the things that you're trying to work on at this stage in their development? Okay. So I think actually this stage of the development is the one that's the most important to be spending a significant percentage of time on fundamentals. And so of course in that I'm including scales and development of the articulation, developing the strength and the speed of the tongue. Um, yeah, lots of scales and scale variations because, um, all right, I'm going to go back to this book peak that you've probably talked about before on this podcast with Anders Ericsson. Mm -hmm who did all the deliberate practice research and he, um, you know, there's a lot of examples in this book, but the one that's really fascinated me was the one when he was talking about chess and like how kind of using it. I think it's such an excellent example, but these mental representations of the, um, the chess board and how really, you know, top level grandmaster chess 
players um, have some, they have like a bank basically of these, you know, if the board looks like this, these are the options that follow, right? And it, that's like their mental representation, right? They have this incredible library of, okay, all the places that this game could go from here if the board looks like this. And I think our best analogy to that is, you know, doing, you know, basically learning all the patterns, the patterns that are the most likely to be seen in tonal music. So going back to the scale, so this is just expanding that to, you know, arpeggios and scales and thirds, fourths, sixths, octaves, different other combinations that you can, you know, do within any kind of key signature. The more fluidity and recognition a student has with that, the easier it will be able to learn the vast majority of music. So in my opinion, this is the time, you know, of course, we're continuing to work on the tone and, um, but we're really we're really sort of um, starting to build those patterns into the fingers and the mental representation so that if you look at a piece of music, you can kind of start to analyze, okay, this is a scale pattern here. Then we've got some chromatic movement here. And now I see an arpeggio and, oh, here's a diminished arpeggio. And you start to be able to sort of collate that. And all of a sudden you can learn something in a fraction of the time, which of course is what we have to do at this stage because we have stacks of music that we need to learn and we can't, you can't be starting over with every new piece that you see. So that's, that's my, as a clarinetist, that's when, you know, we start spending more time on that part of the practice. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, obviously, at any time that you're developing, having a great teacher and getting feedback from this teacher is going to be still your best way to develop. Uh, one of the things I think from the literature and just again from a theoretical standpoint, uh, around this time, because you know there, especially with the way things are set up where when you leave college, you're, you no longer have a formal teacher mm -hmm. um, unless you pay a lot of money afterwards, which some people do, but generally people don't. Generally people leave college mm -hmm. and now I don't have a teacher and I'm on my own. So you also want to, from a gold method perspective, start to structure things in a way where you are taking more autonomy basically in your work. Like you don't want to have pure autonomy, but your ability to say, okay, here's the thing I'm struggling with. Here's what I think will help you start performing more of your own experiments, if you want to call it that, in your practice sessions so that you can start to see what works and what doesn't work under the guidance of your teacher. So you can say, here's what I did. Here's why I did it, but it didn't work. What went wrong? And you can learn from your experiments in that way. I think when you're a beginner, you don't really have to do any of that because you have so much time mm -hmm. potentially with a teacher. But um, I think your work in terms of the way you're approaching your practice, I think focus has to be even more intense than it was previously. And then again, I think you should be really thinking about your practice much more as experiments instead of I'm just doing this thing. So I'm getting better. It's much more like I'm learning what works, what doesn't work, and I'm doing it under my teacher's guidance. So I can begin to not only learn how the, to play my instrument, but how to actually structure my work and sort of do deliberate practice on the yeah. practice organization itself. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the amazing benefits of the gold method could add here or that the app in particular could help um, sort of track is the sort of tempo goals, you know, because I mean, 
I don't know about you, but once I got to college, you know, university, I, you know, I was assigned basic materials, like fundamentals materials, but I wasn't really checked. Nobody checked in with me to make sure I was doing it. You know, it was kind of just like understood that (laughs) I would see the value and continue to do it. And I don't, I don't think I did through a lot of those years because, you know, you take on, you're like, oh, I've got like, you know, three ensembles and a chamber group and all the solo repertoire. Like, how could I possibly have time to practice these fundamentals? And I think that's a huge mistake. And of course, this is like a deeper conversation for whether or not our students are being overloaded with repertoire or ensembles or things that maybe are not always necessarily in their best interest, If it, especially if it takes away that time and mental energy from um, practicing these fundamentals. But but like the advantage of the app is that you would you would know, okay, this will take me 30 minutes. You can get a lot done in 30 minutes. I mean, personally, I think that students of this age should be spending more time than that on those things. But even if even if it was only 30 minutes, they could get a lot done, especially if it was they were playing what we would call the long game, you know, and saying, okay, well, now I can play my scales at, you know, quarter note equals 120. But you know, next month I'll kick up the end goal to quarter note equals 126 and boom, before you know it, they're at 126. And then, you know, the next month, maybe it's a little higher and, you know, you can make, you know, massive amounts of progress if you're just sort of aiming for, you know, a few BPM per month even. I mean, they have four years to get through all this. Imagine like where some of these basic exercises could land at the end of that time and how that would immediately affect everything else that they're doing. But I think, you know, in in large part, you know, we just, we just trust our students. We say, okay, you know, especially, I think, especially at the higher level places, you know, or not, I shouldn't say that, scratch that, you know, maybe the more prestigious, you know, conservatories or universities, we just assume, oh, I've signed, signed to these scales and thirds. Oh, you'll do them. Of course you will. Well, maybe, maybe not. And again, like, it's just, you know, and I'm speaking from a place of experience. It's just easy to say like, oh, I'm so busy. I, you know, I have so much to do. I'm just going to skip ahead to this. And frankly, we shouldn't, just shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Right. And from what we discussed, it's, it's taking the mental representation that you have and just making it so much more complex Mm -hmm. and so much more applicable. And like, this is the thing that allows you to learn music more quickly. And so if you're overloaded, it seems sort of paradoxical, but if you're overloaded, spending all of that time on this thing, that's not your repertoire Mm -hmm. will probably over time help you get through your repertoire more quickly. And so I think, you know, like I said, using that language, you're, um, you're doing all these experiments to just test, basically Mm -hmm. you're testing, where is my mental representation? What do I understand? What don't I understand? Mm -hmm. Because you're getting better. You're getting to a point where your struggle is not, can I make like a pretty good sound over some of the register you're getting into, I'm becoming more competitive overall. But when you do that, you're going to step into, I am now competitive with a lot of other people who are also competitive. And the mental model needs to not only include um, your production elements, but then also from a musical standpoint, being learning all different styles and all that kind of stuff, it, that gets added in there. And all, most of that stuff is taken care of in lessons in general. I think that's what most of the time people are covering. But if a student is not understanding that that is the work that they're doing and they're tr- that's the point of the work that they're doing, 
I don't think it automatically just happens. Maybe for some students, it just worked. And we call those the ones that had it and the people that don't get it, they're the ones that didn't have it. And we're just, we just accept that outcome. Mm -hmm. But for me, I don't accept it. I think if people knew you are developing a mental representation that one year from now will be solidified and you will be able to call upon that anytime you want. If you knew that's what you were doing, I think it would be that much more motivating to yeah. do that work over well, the long that term. And to, I think like sort of making a distinction right now between like the mental representation for like the skill sets, you know, like you have a whole array for any instrument of skill sets and um, sort of points of mastery for your technical development that you need to think about and be doing something towards or making some movement towards. And then, you know, your musical or your stylistic understanding is kind of a different category. And a lot of that can be taken care of by listening, you know, so if we can guide students towards good recordings, great artists and live performance, you know, which we just cannot emphasize enough, which again, like students get busy and like, oh no, I don't have time to go to a concert. You know, I've got to study or I have to practice. It's like, well, yeah, you do. But you know, if we don't start thinking about this as part of like an absolutely, you know, fundamental part of your development, developing your ear, you know, it's like if you only hear yourself <laughs> practicing, well, you don't, that's not a, you know, you're not your mental representation is going to be so limited in, in terms of where you want to go. If you hear amazing players all the time or if, you've, if you're you starting to like get that into your, your mind, you know, or your concept, then you start want, wanting to move towards that. Mm -hmm. And then you might see, oh my gosh, well, I can't articulate like that. What is my articulation missing that this great player has, you know, or just does with ease, like, how do I get there? And then the student gets the hunger and they start asking the questions and they, they have so many more tools to go after that. And the teacher helps the teacher too, because now I can say, okay, you're looking for more ping. You're looking for more, you know, lightness. You're looking for more ease, speed, whatever it might be. There's like a thousand, you know, you know, um, descriptors we could use, but, you know, once we understand the student has sort of the bug for it or like the passion for it, well, it's so much easier to help to get them in that direction. So I think it's two things. And, and for, you know, students to sort of let that go out of balance or, you know, and not sort of follow up on that work is a mistake. Yeah. So, I mean, even to sum up how, what the implications are for teachers and for students, I think it's for teachers, it's to say, it's kind of a, you're sort of continuing on what you've been doing all along. But I think with a purposeful approach of giving just opportunities for the student to sort of run part of their own thing, just to say like, okay, why don't you assign yourself uh, an etude this week or an exercise to work on this and then work on it and the next week come back and tell me why you assigned it, why you picked that, how it helped you so that we can get a sense of like how you would handle it on your own. A quick story. I was driving around. You don't know the story. I was driving around with Alina on the way to, uh, I don't even remember where we were going. Alina's our Yeah, Alina's our daughter. Yeah. So... Uh, I was talking to her and I asked her, she had this car wash that their, her school put together, her class at her school put together. So I was asking her if she's excited. And then she was asking me about food. And she said, well, they were selling food there and she was having a sleepover the night before. So she was worried that she wasn't going to be able to either pack herself something to take or what she was going to do about food. 
And so she said, well, I have some money. And so if I bought something, would you or mom pay me back? <laughs> and I was like, why would I pay you back if you have money? And she's like, you know, obviously like it's her money and they can just spend our money. But it got us into a conversation. I asked her, well, if you had money and you were going to spend it, but you wouldn't get it back, how would you spend your money? Right. Just as a thought exercise, you know, Mm -hmm. and so it led to this really wonderful conversation about why we have money in the first place Mm -hmm. and like all of these kind of big picture concepts. And I think to some extent, it's like starting that process of like, if you were going to fix this problem and you're playing, Mm -hmm. what would you do based on everything we've talked Mm -hmm. about? And then maybe even when they're ready saying, okay. It's you're you're going to for this next week, you're going to guide this shit. You know, what I mean, just like giving opportunities yeah. to basically fail, right, to basically try it out and to fail. And then you can talk through the process of how you got there, because that's the best way that we learn. And I think if a student goes all the way through college and has never really done that, when they get on their own, they don't know how to do that because they never flex right. that particular muscle. Yeah, so, problem solving. Yeah, so I, I mean, think that's the to finish my do. thought. Yeah, I just think. That's one of the things that I would be trying if I was in that position from a theoretical standpoint. That's one of the things I'd be trying to do is gradually let them take the reins, even just a little bit so they can see what that's like, so to speak. Yeah. And I think just to clarify, this is late to clarify this point, but just for anybody who's listening and wondering like what kind of like late high school college student we're talking about, we're talking about like, you know, students that are serious about music that really want to have decided they want to reach a certain level of mastery. I think, you know, if you're talking about the student that just wants to be in marching band and, you know, or like just participate in, you know, all these things might not apply quite as directly to a sort of less driven or like music focused student. That's fine. There's no judgment there. I'm just saying, I think that that's the direction of this conversation is like, what are we giving them at this stage that allows them to get to the next level? So, you know, we're kind of looking at the whole trajectory here, assuming that the ideal beginner we're talking about moves into this next stage and, you know, is the one that wants to go into music and then the final stage of kind of, 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 of getting there and starting this career in the field. Sure. One caveat for me would be, this is just a path to becoming an expert, Mm -hmm. right? And so we'll talk about professionals next and how they would go about doing things. But, you know, if you don't want to become a, quote, professional musician, but you have a desire to become an expert at playing an instrument so that you can enjoy playing repertoire, this is still the same yeah, path. It's, it's no true. different. And these yeah. things we're talking about will still apply to you. And I think that kind of sums up nicely what we would say is the student's responsibility is actually investing in it. Like before, when with you were a beginner, it was just like committing to it, doing, you know, showing up and all that kind of stuff. This is now like, I'm going to actually put thought into what I'm doing. I can't yeah. just go through the motions at this point. If I'm going to get to the next stage of whatever my development is, I have to not only go with my teacher, but be willing to ask questions, be willing to go search things out on my own. I mean, I can I can remember back all of the Google searches I did for routines, for how to develop these things. You know, there were certain players. I scoured the internet trying to find information. Like I was very curious at when I was in you know, junior, senior year. And so I think that played a big part in me being able to own the process a little bit more was I I wanted to know it because I wanted to know it, Mm -hmm. not because I felt like I had to know this for some specific reason. You know, and I think that's a key part of this is like you just begin to see that 
a development of the whole big picture. And I don't want to say going past your teacher, but being willing to sort of take the reins a little bit. That's a part of the, a necessary yeah. part of the development. And I think a good place to interject this idea would be now. And that I think one thing music does really well is it sort of sides, sidesteps this kind of grade focused mentality you can disagree if you want to but I remember not thinking at all about what grade I would get in my lessons like that was basically like completely irrelevant like I wasn't worried about my GPA I wasn't worried about getting an A or whatever like I you know it was like it was so many steps beyond that like it was about like well I need to sort of maximize what I can learn in this time like get as much as I possibly can out of it so um, that part, I think, of what we do is really positive. I don't know if that resonates with other, um, you know, musicians out there, if they would agree with me or not. But I, I feel like grades, you know, and you kind of learn that pretty quick. I mean, maybe it's just observing people who have left and you you see like your grades are like, when you go take an audition, your grades are meaningless. Like nobody on the committee cares what grades you got in music history or whatever. It's literally like what you can show them you can do on that day. And I'm not saying, you know, failure music history classes, not what I'm saying. Do not quote me as saying <laughs> that. What I'm saying is, is that I feel like ideally the passion for what we do drives us past that, you know, need to like get a perfect GPA or kind of fixate on that aspect of it and more of say like how how is this thing that I'm working on right now going to aid my development so that I can become the best musician that I can be. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so for our final stage of development that we're going to discuss, certainly not someone's final stage of development overall, but uh, we're going to discuss a uh, professional musician. And for the sake of specificity, we'll just talk about being orchestral musicians in a full-time job because that's what we know. There are obviously many different ways of being a professional musician. We'll speak to what we know, and maybe we'll talk to other people someday about other career paths. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what your life is like as a professional musician and the things that you're trying to manage and what things are important to you at this stage in your career or your development? What things are important to me? Um, well, I mean, of course, like first and foremost would be like being prepared for all those things that we need to do. Um, as a wind player that plays a reed instrument, we have to like maintain that schedule of, of reeds and making sure that we have reeds that are ready to do what we need them to do at any given time. So that's like a big part of like the planning process. I would say that we haven't really talked about it at all. And of course, for double read players, that's like even more complicated because they have the whole creating process as well. So they have to be incredibly organized and dedicate an enormous amount of time to just that process of that's a whole nother conversation, but of making reads and making sure. But, you know, at this stage when you're playing is very, you know, is it's like we're very settled in the way that we play. We know what we need. Um, so that that's sort of where that equipment aspect comes in. You have to, you know, make sure that you're like ready equipment wise to, to do what you want to do or your life becomes much more difficult. So um, those are at the forefront of my mind, those two things. And then I would say, you know, in terms of since we're talking about a fundamental routine or what we do, just making sure that is something that's directly addressing whatever my needs are that are coming up. I mean, I think now I'm I'm moving on to like a belief that, you know, you, you just need to stay on top of everything that you need to do almost every day still at this point. If you don't, 
you start to feel it at some point down the road. But, you know, if I have something that's very like endurance intensive or, um, you know, has like long tones that you need to be able to play a huge dynamic range in, obviously I'm making sure that I'm doing long tones to be in shape for that. And if I know I'm got you know, articulation heavy things coming up, I know that I really need to stay on top of that because that will, this is like the first thing that will go for me is just the speed of the articulation and then the quality of the articulation. So as much as I hate working on it, I know that I have to like keep that in the queue, um, so to speak. So I don't know if that helps. Sure. I mean, I think one major difference um, when you become a professional is that uh, you're literally never choosing what to play. I mean, from mm, a, from a professional true. standpoint, yeah. I mean, maybe when you're in school, you can have a discussion with your teacher and say, I like these pieces. I'd like mm. to learn them. Or, mm. I mean, obviously your teacher is still assigning you things. And then when you're a beginner, it's very routine, but you're also like, you don't care at that stage, you know? So at this point, um, to me, this is when the organization becomes very important mm -hmm. the way you organize your life because not only do you have a lot of different pieces to learn but you got to manage possibly like you said getting your fundamentals in there and having an opportunity for you to uh, still progress still get better even though it happens more slowly and you have to be a lot more specific about the way you would define progress for I sure. think yeah. and then on top of that being able to manage other life things, you know, now when you're, it's like all the bills that you got to pay. And if you have kids and if you're teaching on top of that, it's like all of a sudden you go from my whole life is about, I'm in school and I have all these classes, but I'm also practicing and I'm in these ensembles to my whole life is I am playing in my job and I have to teach and I have to take care of all these other types of things. So it's not drastically different. It's just the stakes go up basically, mm -hmm. right? The stakes go yeah. up. If you fail a class, it can be bad, but it also may not be the end of the world. But if you miss a mortgage payment, that can be not great, right? So when the stakes go up, the value of being good at something like deliberate practice and structuring your work with something like the gold method pillars goes up too, I think. And so that's why I think for me, it's become even more valuable because it's helped me to manage everything and be less stressed overall. I know I'd love for you to speak about just the incorporation of these pillars and this discussion of deliberate practice into even just preparing for the stuff you're com that's coming up now, these concerts coming up, especially the uh, quartet for the end of time. You were just saying the other day, just having these conversations and having gone through some of these programs has seemingly just changed the way you approach doing the work in general. I'd love for you to kind of speak to that about how you getting better at, at organization, how you understanding how to maximize your practice time even more has helped you as a professional. Yeah, wow, well, it's a big question. Um, yeah, I think just the principles of like, you know, the most basic one being that you know, you start really slow with things that are really gnarly and like very, you know, kind of at that top like level of what you need to be able to do. And you just, you start early and you just slowly kind of move it up so that you're not like practicing under that stress of like, oh my gosh, I have like three days and I've got to, you know, move this up however much, you know, in that time. So and that will do so much for like lessening the stress and deepening the, the knowledge and the understanding of what you're trying to do. But I think lately, I mean, you mentioned the quartet for the new time, which would take so long to explain exactly like 
what this piece is and what it means, but um, basically the harmonic and rhythmic language is very, um, it's unique. You know, it's not, there's nothing else like it. So all that that I said in the beginning about learning the scales and all the patterns and all those things doesn't apply for music like this, you know, and we do, you know, there's certain what we would call atonal music or music that doesn't fall within these sort of standard um, scale or tonalities that we work so much on or that so much of the music falls into. So when we get into that category, it's kind of a different, it's a different bag. It's a different challenge. And the biggest thing that I'm, I've learned this, I've played this, this will be the fourth time I've performed this, which is a lot actually for this piece, but um, I'm realizing just just so how important that mental representation is, meaning like how deeply do I understand what I'm trying to play? Like do I know, you know, if something's not going well, well, it's because I don't really understand what the notes are, what this combination of notes are. Like my brain cannot process it at the speed at which I'm trying to do it. It's not that my fingers can't do it. They can. It's a, the interpretation of me seeing it and my brain understanding what it is, telling my fingers what to do is is slower. There's some broken piece in that chain. Um, so then that ignites the whole like, well, okay, how do I practice this so that I can understand this more deeply? Like, what do I do next to grasp that instead of just feeling like, oh my gosh, this piece is just so hard. Sure. <laughs> so uh, that's been kind of exciting to come back to it and like, and have some muscle memory, you know, from learning it, you know, from having this be the fourth kind of go around for this particular um, work. But, you know, more than that, just... Yeah, just coming back with this like new kind of reverence for what the music is because it's incredible and it's deeply meaningful. But then, you know, how do I sort of use what however I've grown or what I understand now to help me understand the piece better, more deeply? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's kind of one of the beautiful parts about viewing our understanding of deliberate practice or the gold method pillars or things about focus and music making is that it's all cumulative, you know? Mm -hmm. So the basic things that we set up when we were beginners, if we were able to set up a good foundation, we're still living off of that foundation. It's just become more and more and more complex over time. So it's not like somehow that work doesn't matter, right? And I think sometimes it's easy to forget, really. I think we we forget that like it's all part of a process and we need to lay the bricks in the right order and build the house in the right way so that when we are putting on the roof and like decorating the inside and stuff that it's all there and it's all going to stand and it was all valuable. And so um, one interesting thought I've had recently, and I would love for you to try to ex try to speak to this, maybe through the quartet for the end of time or just your general thoughts. But this idea of I've been recording myself a lot more recently because I'm experimenting with getting that level of feedback. And one thing I have I've come to understand is I've done enough of these processes of running these programs that I kind of understand that if I just do the process, I'll be able to do it at the end, more or less. You know, sometimes it's not 100% perfect and I got to run the program again. But there are a certain amount of problems that because I have a deep enough or a, um, a sort of efficient enough mental representation that literally just going through a process is enough. Mm -hmm. I don't have to overthink it too much. I just need to give myself the time to remember what what's going on and how to coordinate it and all that. 
There are other problems, though, that I'm not aware of when I'm doing it, and that recording and getting that feedback is the only way that's going to fix it itself. And it's really interesting to balance this difference between you need to record yourself and you need to address this problem versus you kind of understand what you're doing. You just need to give it time. Mm -hmm. There's are two different things that yeah. you. I feel like I need to manage a lot more now because I could spend forever practicing something that I don't actually need to practice because I know how to do it. I just need to practice it for a week and it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know that, you can spend a lot of time on day one that's not efficient because sure. you Something are worried away. about it, yeah. you know? So do you have any experience in that that you could speak to or what what this feels like even with the quartet for the end of time or the Hinasteri you just did? Is anything yeah. like Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the hard part about this particular piece that we're talking about um, is it's, it's just rhythmically so erratic that it's almost impossible to put into one of these programs in that way because... You basically can't get it unless you programmed really so incredibly complicated. Like I'm sure there's a way you could program your metronome to to do it, but it's just it. I mean, some of these movements are so long, and that the compound meters are so complex, and that the smallest unit of rhythm is so fast that it just doesn't um, it doesn't translate well to that. So I've done a lot of small, I guess what we would call like chunking maybe in this whole discussion of deliberate practice sort of techniques where I've just, I've tried to work on small sections of it, making sure that the rhythm is accurate and trying to understand the musical language in that small section and then building it back out. Yeah. So it's just a lot of really focused work and then kind of assembling it back together. I don't know. And I think maybe to ask my question in a slightly better way, like I, my assumption to some degree is not that you need to like record yourself a ton at this stage to understand what's going on because you've learned this piece before. And what, what rather you need to do is just to, to, to give yourself sort of a process that you're going through, which like you're talking about, you're breaking it down, you're chunking it and putting it back together. You're doing this process that if you just go through the process of doing it, you'll walk out on the other side able to play it. Mm -hmm. And you know that and you trust that. As opposed to if this is the first time you're learning something and you're making more of those musical decisions, like maybe recording yourself to hear that, or maybe there's certain aspects of the way you're going through and producing sound that you're unaware of or intonation tendencies or things like that. So I think it almost makes me think when you're listening back, there are certain things that are of a higher priority than others because certain things that may be not great right now will be fine by the end of the process. You know what I mean? I just think it's an interesting thing to think about. I think about way more now sure. because my mental representation being so, like I said, complex or whatever you want to say at this stage, like I understand a lot of what I'm doing, but I can't play everything. So I just need, even if it's a short two day thing to help wrap my fingers around what's going on, it's more about I'm learning how to re-coordinate everything that needs to work together. It's like I've sort of lost the coordination, but it takes a second to get back into it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The idea of, like, you could liken it to riding a bike. You know, they say it's like riding a bike. Like, you yeah. can just get back on it. Like, once you've learned that motor pattern for riding a bike, you can just hop back on and do You don't have to relearn to ride the bike every single time. But if you were going to learn how to, like, do a, like, a bunny hop on a bike, you're on a bike, but now you're doing something you don't know how to do. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was just going to say. Like, I think, and this is very much sidetracking the conversation, but 
one interesting point about like revisiting pieces because it sounds like we're talking about that a little bit right now. You know, you're not, even if you've advanced as a player, so let's say I'm I'm a better player than I was the last time I did this piece. I don't know if I am or not, but let's just say that is true. You know, I still may not rise above that level immediately. You know, I might just rise to the level that I was at the last time. And then you have to kind of put in that. I feel like that's a little bit of what you're saying, like a little bit of that extra effort or like energy or thought or experimentation or something to take where you are now and your more sophisticated mental representation and reach that new level. But your body is probably going to remember that last way that you did it. So if you're doing some funky thing as a clarinetist where you know your hand position was weird or you weren't moving your air the right way up to this note, you know, your body might go back to that first. And so then you it's your job to sort of then be like, okay, well, I know better now. What what do I asking those questions? What do I do to you know, move this to this higher level of mental representation that I now have because my musical ideas are more mature or solidified. Yeah. So at this stage, I guess sort of finishing out this, the same structure, you don't have a teacher at this point. So Mm -hmm. uh, there's really no responsibility for a teacher in terms of deliberate practice or whatever. And all of the onus is now on you to do all the things that you learned from your teacher and things that you may have developed on your own. Um, And you, and one of the things about being a professional in any field, but since we're talking about music, mm-hmm. is it just doesn't stop. You don't yeah. get to a point where you're like, I've got it figured out. The work is less now. Yeah, but in a way, it's like the most humbling stage, right? Because you don't, like at the same token that you don't have a teacher being like, you know, you should have practiced more last week or you you could have done this or you didn't do this right. But you're also getting all that like praise potentially from a teacher too, or the attention that you get as a student or as a young player that shows like a lot of promise, you know, now you're at this stage where, yeah, like it's like you're saying, it's all on you to, you know, to push yourself to the next level. But then that requires a real humbling of self to look at yourself that way and be like, you know, what is the difference between myself and this great player that I admire or this quality that this great player has, like, could I move towards that? That takes a lot of humility. And I think a lot of us are afraid because we think that that, you know, or I'll speak for myself, but it's easy to slip into, well, I have a job. I must have appear to everybody as though I'm 100% together or I will appear to be a fraud or that I don't deserve to be where I am. And that's unfortunate because, you know, if we slip too far in that direction, then it holds you back from looking at ways that you could continue to grow. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts about this that you didn't get to say? Gosh, I don't think so. I feel like I'm not sure we covered what we set out to cover. No, we did. Of course we did. (laughs) Yeah, maybe some other things too. The only final thoughts I have are just repeating what I've said this entire episode, which is, I think this language matters. I think it's important that we understand what we're doing when we're practicing through the development of mental representations. That's the thing. That's why we practice. We are developing that. What is a mental representation? A mental representation is basically where we begin to understand how certain things relate to each other. And so uh, F major scale, these notes relate to each other and it becomes an F major scale. So we do not see seven or eight individual notes. We see an F major scale and there is a 
there is a relationship between that and our fingers and the way we make those sounds. The same thing with forte and piano and the same thing with different accents or different articulations. These all we translated into sound. And the way we do that and the way we understand that is through practice and experimentation. And essentially, if we were to sort of generalize the entire process is you go from I am responsible for almost none of this experimentation mm -hmm. and my teacher is guiding mm -hmm. all of it to I'm now responsible for all of the experimentation and I have no teacher. And it sort of crosses each other somewhere in the middle, I would say, when you're, you know, late high school, college, maybe just out of it where this will cross and then you'll start to do the other side of it. And so uh, I think... I believe it's important that we speak with this language because if you understand my practice is is serving to develop a mental representation that I will still be using 30 years later mm. and this will matter for that, I think it helps connect us to that work all that time later. So it doesn't feel like I'm just doing this thing and does it matter right now? Of course mm -hmm. it matters right now. Of course the work you're doing right now matters. And of course the quality of the work you do matters right now as well. And so I just think that's important. Those are my final words. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I want to say one thing to say. You had your chance for no, your no, final No, no. I get it. I get another chance. Um, <laughs> like at any stage you can go and, and ask for help from somebody else. Like I think just to make that clear, like if you feel really stuck, like do not be afraid to, you know, call up somebody you trust and respect and admire and, you know, ask for them to hear you play or get a lesson or whatever. We should never feel... Um, that we can't do that. But yeah, to sort of sum up what you're saying, like I would say, you know, that first stage, you know, the beginner, like focusing on the fundamentals, getting the way that we create the sound, um, well-established, good, healthy playing habits. So for, you know, clarinet, that would also be like posture and hand position and embouchure and these sort of really just the, the fundamental positions of how you play. And then the next stage being about really kind of deepening the understanding of the musical language. So really getting in those, you know, repetitions of the scale patterns and the tonality that we work with most of the time. And then I didn't get to say this, but I think that final stage is just continually checking in with like, do I have all the tools to say what I want to say on the instrument? You know, because at this point, we should be pretty clear on what we want to say. You know, we can always continue to develop that and will be developing that. But that's the last piece, I think, at this stage is like, well, I want to be able to do this and I can't quite do it. So what do I need to get myself there? And then that informs, you know, how you develop a fundamental routine or what you, you practice before you practice all of your other things that you need to practice. So it's kind of going in that order, like... This is what I need. This is what I want. What do I need to do to help me kind of continue to move the needle towards that? Yeah. I'm going to take one more final word actually too, because as, I, as you were just talking and as I was saying what I was saying, like one of the things that's super important to, to, to acknowledge, I feel like I have to acknowledge this actually, is this idea that someone, depending on how old they are or what grade they're in, should be at a mm -hmm. certain level of development is we have to abolish this thinking. I totally agree. Because it basically, like, that's all going to be dependent on how much teaching you had before, the, the, the education. So I don't want to say the quality so of the education, variables. but 
you know, like, did you have a private teacher? Did you not have a private teacher? Did the band director have to do work with every single person? So like, you just didn't get that individualized instruction, you know, were you a serious student at a at, early on? Or were you sort of like, I want to do this for fun? Like all of these things are going to dictate your level of development and how quickly or how slowly that happens. But if you get to a certain point in your development where other people have developed further and they're ready for some more of these, I'm going to take the onus and I'm ready for sort of musical development, but you didn't get that. You can't skip it. Mm -hmm. Like you can't skip that and assume things are just going to work themselves out at some point. You still need that stage of, I am not ready to take this on on my own. Mm -hmm. I really need to buy into what my teacher is telling me so that I can develop the stage. And if that doesn't happen until you're 18, as a freshman in college, it doesn't mean that you can't be successful. And by successful, I mean, enjoy a career in music yeah. in some fashion. But people can think that they can think because I haven't got this thing, there's either something wrong with me or I have no shot. And it's just not true. It's just know what stages of development you are at yeah. and then lean into your responsibility at that stage. And again, if you're if you're 18, freshman year in college, have had barely, barely any individualized instruction you're sort of developmentally the same as like an eighth grader who still needs to buy in fully to their teacher. And so if you're struggling and you're not buying into your teacher, like you're not doing your developmental responsibility, if you want to call it that way. Mm -hmm. And that's fine unless you want to get better, unless yeah. you want to see progress, whether you want to become a quote professional or you just want to enjoy the ability to play your instrument, you cannot skip those steps of development. So Try to be aware of what they are. Try to help other people be aware of what they are and just understand what comes with that. That's all. Yeah. And I think it's that's one of the big lies too is that there's just no time. You know, you don't have enough time. There, that there's some sort of like ticking clock on it. And yeah, I mean, the biggest thing to, to, to do if this is starting to resonate is just to keep your head down and do the good work. Do the, the good, like hard, diligent, slow work that nobody can skip. I mean, really, like no one can skip that. Yeah. We talked about this earlier. Like there might, it might seem like some people can, but, but nobody can skip that work. Yeah. Does, it doesn't work that way. It's not, there's, there's science that backs it up. You have to, you, there's just a certain amount of work that everybody has to do to get to a certain level. Yeah. I think that's good. Okay. We'll call it there. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any feedback or anything like that, you can reach me at that's not spit.com or that's not spit on Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode or had any feelings at all, I'd appreciate it if you would give it a rating and a review on iTunes and don't forget to share this episode on social media so other people can find it. I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. You can check out Brandon's work at epiphanyrecordingstudio.com. Kathleen, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and most of all, I'd like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time. Bye.